Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 245 Singing Meditation. We're joined by Buddhist teachers and translators Ari Goldfield and Rose Taylor to explore one of the unique aspects of the Kagyu path of Tibetan Buddhism the songs of yogic joy. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with Ari Goldfield and Rose Taylor. It's great to have you guys on the program. Thanks for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist geeks today. Great to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to do this. And we also say hello to the Buddhist geeks and geekettes. <laughs> happy to be with you all. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you on. And um, I think how I heard about you, I think over a year ago, I got an email from Lama Suryadas and he said, you know, you really should speak to Ari and Rose. They're really fantastic upcoming teachers and they've done this great translation. And, you know, anytime Lama Suryadas emails you and starts telling you you should talk to someone, you, you know, you kind of have to listen. He's sort of like a uh, an interesting figure in American Buddhism. And so immediately I, I went and checked out your book. Um, you guys are both translators, editors, and you're also Buddhist teachers. And um, your recent book is called Stars of Wisdom, Analytical Meditation, Songs of Yogic Joy, and Prayers of Aspiration. And this is a book that you translated from your own teacher, um, Kempo Sultram Gamsa Rinpoche. And he's sort of, I guess, one of these classic Tibetan teachers, one of the, the folks that actually um, made the trek over the Himalayas went with other people, uh, sought refuge in India. So, I mean, this is a classically trained Tibetan teacher. I wanted to start with getting into first how you got onto this Buddhist path. Um, Rose, I know you're English. Uh, Ari, I presume you're an, an American. Um, how you guys first got on the Buddhist path and then how you found your teacher, how you got into the Tibetan Buddhist path. I was introduced to Buddhism in my last year in law school, which was uh, 1993. And I was definitely searching for uh, some more meaning in life than I had encountered up until that point. And a friend of mine, a, a classmate from Taiwan, started teaching me to meditate and I just loved it right away. And, and in those days, you could go to a bookstore and just sit down in front of the Buddhist section. There were like 20 books total of Buddhism that were around. So I just started reading whatever I could. And then I traveled with him after I took the bar exam to Nepal and India and then I went back to Silicon Valley and my job that I had accepted as a corporate finance attorney. And I lasted in that six months. I had a brief but unillustrious career. Hmm. And uh, I, because what I really wanted to do was go and study Buddhism. And so I did. I quit my job in June of 94. I went to Dharamsala, started studying Tibetan 
And six months after that, I met Kemper Rinpoche. And then I asked him if I could be his student a couple months after that. And he accepted me as his student and then had me start studying Sanskrit and Tibetan. I ended up traveling with him eight times around the world over the next decade or so as his secretary and translator. And he guided me in different meditation retreats that we would do together. So I really got to be with him every day for many years. Nice. And was there something in particular that attracted you to the Tibetan tradition? I mean, you were studying, you know, some of the books that were around. Was there something that sort of was appealing to you in that particular form of Buddhism? I think the richness of it is something that attracted me. And a little bit of the craziness, like when you said Kemper Rinpoche is classic, I just kind of had to laugh a little bit because he's classically undefinable, classically inscrutable, which most Buddhist masters are from any tradition. But the Tibetan tradition has this particular crazy yogi tradition, and Kemper Rinpoche really embodies that and love to make up songs, is also a great scholar, uh, and just really marches to the beat of his own drummer. The drum is hard to even define as coming from this planet. So I think that combination of scholarship and richness of meditation and this kind of yogic tradition all together, I really found I could, as far as I could get into there was more to do, and it brought out different aspects of myself, allowed me to train in singing and dancing and all these things I never would have done before, never would have imagined were part of my Buddhist path, but which I really enjoyed. Mm. And, and Rose, how did you get into this whole thing? It wasn't my fault. It was my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> so... My mother lived in Thailand after she graduated from Oxford University and she uh, studied and practiced in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. And then after she'd moved back to England, she met Trumpa Rinpoche, Chugyam Trumpa Rinpoche, in 1968 and um, became a student of his. So before I was born, I had uh, a good ground to come into and I... I grew up in the Shambhala uh, tradition, but I, I definitely did my own shopping around. When I was about six, then my friends were going to Sunday school, so I decided to go to Sunday school as well. And I really enjoyed learning about Jesus and that he died for my sins, not that I was sure what that was, but I thought that was very nice of him. <laughs> he didn't know me. And, uh, and you know, there was some kind of bodhisattva ideal that I saw in his activity that drew me. And uh, when I was 11, then I kind of, I did some more shopping around. I, I was going to the the Shambhala study group and meditating. And I was also going to the Hare Krishna group on Sundays. They have very good vegetarian food and a mala for me to do my mantra recitation on. And I also joined the Salvation Army 
I joined the choir and I had a tambourine and we'd sing songs. So I think I was very drawn to to the singing as well. It was interesting that that's how I connected with the Christian tradition. But by the time I went to university, then I definitely settled upon the Buddhist tradition being what was right for me and, and where I felt my uh, true spiritual home was. And I feel like very strongly, particularly within the Kagyu lineage, that's my practice lineage. But I also feel, you know, in the world of globalization, that it's, you know, we're really at a stage of international dharma. And, and I found, you know, I'm also very attracted to to the Zen tradition and, you know, different traditions. It's good to meet teachers from all of the different traditions, even, you know, being firmly rooted in one tradition, but also it's a wonderful um, world that we're currently in where you get to dialogue with lots of different Buddhist traditions. Hmm, beautiful. And then how did you find your way to Kempo Rinpoche? Well, I did the, the Kagyu training through Shambhala International and uh, went through all of that path and then also their Shambhala path, the warrior path. And Kempa Rinpoche was teaching in, in London. At the time, I was studying at Naropa University, but I was home for the summer holiday, and they asked me to be head of household for his visit when Ari and Kempa Rinpoche were visiting. So, And I'd heard about him, and I'd heard really good things, and people had said, oh, you should really meet this teacher. So I went, and the first uh, session he gave we, we walked in, the center was completely full, it was to, to bursting. And as is traditional, everyone in the room stands up and Rinpoche came in and he climbed up onto his throne, which is about four feet high. And he stood there and began talking and he remained standing throughout the whole morning session. So of course, so did the audience. And I thought, this guy is really special. This is interesting. And, and he, you know, people were getting a little bit sort of antsy in the audience. And I was like, you know, he's probably the oldest man in the room. And, and the audience were kind of, you know, reacting. It was very interesting. And he knew, he could tell. And he said, if your legs are getting tired, then just stand on one foot. And then when that foot's tired, stand on the other foot. So he's on the throne and he's hopping from one foot to the other foot. And the attendants were a bit nervous at this point, thinking, you know, they might have to catch him if he falls. But I thought, this is a really interesting teacher. And that was it. I, I was in. <laughs> mm, very cool. And then, you know, you both alluded to this, Ari mentioning that that singing ended up being part of your path. And Rose, you mentioned that even early on, uh, the singing in the Christian tradition was captivating to you. One of the unique aspects, I would say, looking at this book and looking at the teachings of uh, Kempa Rinpoche is the songs of yogic joy. And it immediately brought to mind uh, reading some of Milarepa's songs of realization while I was studying at Naropa. Um, and I gathered from those poems or those songs that they were sort of poetic expressions of realization. But what I didn't realize until I picked up your book was that they were not just that, they were also practices. And so I was wondering if you could share first a little bit about these songs of yogic joy and where they come from. So the tradition of singing 
in Buddhism actually goes all the way back to the Buddha himself. The Buddha taught in many different styles, and one whole section of his teachings is called the, the teachings sung in melody. And from there, in India, the yogic tradition in particular really picked up singing as a way of teaching, as a way of teaching and also as a way of practicing the teachings. Because when you can sing something, it really essentializes it and also connects it with our experience very strongly. So in the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, which starts in the Indian lineage with Talopa, he sang many songs, and then his student Naropa sang many songs. And from there, when it came to Tibet, many of the Tibetan masters who were students of those Indian teachers were the ones who started singing, and then it just became part of Tibetan Buddhist practice. Mm, that's so interesting. I was just trying to imagine the Buddha singing because when you know you read <laughs> some of this stuff, it's not like it doesn't. You can't. It's hard to imagine it being sung. One interesting story about that is that when the monks started chanting the sutras originally, they were cacophonous, and nobody among the public liked to go and listen to them. And so they, when they told that to the Buddha, he said, well, just sing in a popular melody uh, that people will like. And so they started singing in the Brahmin melodies and then the people were happy. And our teacher Kemper Rinpoche emphasized that when he would say that when modern people sing, just like in the old days, the tradition is to sing in popular melodic form that you and others in your society in your day and age can really connect with that's so interesting so this is something to be really fun to explore in more depth and i saw you wrote, wrote about this as singing meditation this singing meditation has a structure to it i mean it sounds like there's some elements that are very flexible and yet you guys both uh, teach this when you're teaching retreats or workshops or programs and I'm curious if you could kind of get into the nuts and bolts details. And then also, if, if we have time, it'd be great for, to actually hear some of it, too, and, and what it sounds like. We can do that, yes. <laughs> great. <laughs> so, well, one of the things that Ari was talking about with, with song is that it essentializes. So you're looking at something that's very pithy. And if you look at the sutras and the tantras, you have what are called root verses, and and these are, are really, so it's the same kind of thing. They're very pithy, but they're extremely rich. But because of this essential quality, sometimes they need more elucidating than you actually find in the song. So Kemper Rinpoche used to give long explanations of what the song means, because the more meaning, the fuller, uh, your understanding around the, the complete meaning of the song, then you just, when you sing the song, you will have all of that meaning held for you. And this is what we do as well, is then we teach. So you can really kind of keep going with one song. You could give like a week's worth of daily teachings on one song because they're that pithy and rich. So it's good to have the full explanation about the song. But even if you don't, just hearing the song, they also, because they're poetic, 
then you you get a flavor of what they're referring to, even though you might not have the full conceptual understanding, you also get a feeling. So one of the things is to have an explanation about the song. And then when you sing the song as a practice, then you can either be bringing that to mind and doing a kind of contemplative meditation on the meaning of the song as you sing. So that's one way of of actually practicing with the song. But another way is also just really meditating on the bare essentials of the song. So as you sing, just listening to the sound and resting on the true nature of the sound, the uh, indescribable, inexpressible quality of sound. It's, It's like a direct valid cognition meditation where you just without concepts you're just giving the mind something to rest on and and as you're describing this practice which is so interesting i was just thinking about what connection there might be and it sounds like there clearly is one between um, the singing meditation and uh, mantra recitation this is a practice i haven't personally done but i know it's a big part of uh, the tibetan tradition there's a strong connection because Singing connects with what the mantra tradition calls the subtle body. When we sing, it opens the chakras, the channels in our heart, and that allows us to be relaxed. And then the profundity of the teachings that are contained in the song connect that much more deeply with our own being because we're open to it. The difference is that mantra is usually recited in one particular style, whereas when you sing, you can sing in a variety of melodies and you can also sing in your own language about a variety of topics, of aspects of Dharma. So it could in some ways even be more direct for us than mantra recitation. And another very interesting point that's from, you know, the modern scientific world is they, they're doing research on song and they find it actually works with a different part of the brain than just speaking, than, than that kind of language. So it they're actually have uh, done a lot of research in the area of dementia and song and some people who have had strokes or or are suffering from dementia can communicate in song they can sing but they can't talk so it's a very interesting area at the moment uh, the whole area of singing and and what is actually happening uh, to us when we sing and I think this is one of the the qualities we did touch on about Kempa Rinpoche and and the style of practice and teaching that that we're involved with is utilizing, you know, all the parts of the brain and and all the different ways of, of practicing. And you keep bringing Dharma in. So we use song, we use meditation, we do a lot of body work, um, meditations on the body, and then also uh, Tibetan yogic exercise and dancing and it's approaching one thing from all of these different angles and it's a way then that dharma gets incorporated into your very being so it's not something that stays at 
the intellectual understanding level or the this sort of pure mind training of meditation, but it's something that completely transforms our experience of the world. Mm, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, Ari, you were mentioning in the, uh, in the beginning that you'd never imagined doing song and dance as part of your spiritual practice. And when you said that, I thought, oh yeah, me either. I could, <laughs> you know, for, for many, uh, you know, maybe it's just American dudes, but for many dudes, you know, it's like song and dance. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for many women I've met, the idea of just sitting quietly, not talking to anyone also seems just strange in some ways. So I find it interesting that Rose, what you're describing is this kind of um, full spectrum of different practices that uh, it sounds like at least some of them would make most people uncomfortable in some way. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think that? Because usually when we're uncomfortable, we're working our edge. And one of the ways that we can understand the Buddhist path is to really expand to our full potential, expand our being to complete wholeness. So when we find ourselves in one of those uncomfortable places, it's, well, what's the discomfort? Is there some sense of ego clinging here, not wanting to be embarrassed? I'm not good at this. I can't do this. Some level of judgment about ourselves. Or, you know, there's all sorts of reasons that can create discomfort something is happening. If we get too comfortable in our practice, maybe, you know, we, we need to expand ourselves a little bit. And I think this can be a, the singing, the dancing can be very interesting places for us to work those edges. Mm. And when you're training uh, with Kempa Rinpoche, how much of your training overall, not like a specific percentage, but how much was spent doing things like singing and dancing meditation? A lot. <laughs> mm, really? A lot. Rinpoche would have me, like if we were, for example, traveling somewhere in between teaching somewhere in the world and we'd stay in a hotel, then he'd give me this whole songbook and he'd say, stay up until you finish singing this. Wow. And so I'd be up all night singing. And... Other times he would be composing songs and then he like he loved to do that on plane rides. He said it would make the the plane trip go a lot faster if he would compose a song and then I would have to translate it and put it to melody and sing it. And everywhere we went, his students, he attracted students who who liked that. And a lot of them, it took them a while, just like you're describing, but once you get into it, it's a tough habit to break because it feels so good to sing and to be able to move your body. And as Rose was saying, it's not the only thing. And it's, it's one method out of many, and all of which are in service of how do we access the true nature of what we are. That's what Buddhism is about. And singing and dancing, when you sing really profound songs and you're not just singing in sort of a spaced out way or a superficial way, which Kemper Rinpoche would, would criticize me for sometimes, he would say to me, you're not meditating, you're just singing. So when you really combine it with meditation, it's one 
wonderful method. We need others too, but this is one really good one. Okay, cool. So I'm thinking that might be a good place to end and then sharing whatever you think would be appropriate and then we can sort of end the session with that. We thought we'd sing a song by Milarepa, who is the most famous singing Tibetan yogi. Tibetan pop star. (laughs) (laughs) And it's called the Song of Mahamudra. And Mahamudra refers to the true nature of mind, the luminous awareness that is the true nature of mind. And we're going to sing the other song as well. And we'll sing, yeah, we'll sing the a song. A song that, on singing. Right. <laughs> that Kempa Rinpoche composed. So here's the song of Mahamudra by Milarepa. When meditating in Mahamudra, just as it is, rest effortlessly, without distraction, rest relaxed, in emptiness, rest with clarity. And in this bliss, rest with awareness. In the non-conceptual, rest perfectly still. Treat variety with equality. So many kinds of certainty. Shine on and on in this resting mind, effortlessly, spontaneously. Self-luminous mind benefits others. No wish for a result, now that's fantastic. No hope, no fear, now that feels good. The joys in not clinging to duality. Confusion now shines as wisdom. And oh, how sweet this is. And now we'll sing a short verse that... Kemper Rinpoche composed about singing and dancing. The Buddha surely do sing and dance. To sing and dance is surely profound practice. By practicing profound song and dance, We reach enlightenment. How amazing. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th, in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, 
idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.